Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. In March, the United States brought in a temporary, near-universal child benefit as part of the American Rescue Plan, enacted as a response to COVID-19. Democrats in the government are pushing to make it permanent, and that would mark a major change in US social policy. Of course, child allowances aren't in themselves new. They form a fundamental part of the safety net in other OECD countries, as well as in lower and middle income countries. And while these contexts may differ, the debates and the controversies can be quite similar. So in this episode, we explore those debates around universality and investment in early childhood in the United States. We compare them with those in upper-middle-income Argentina, which has had near-universal child allowances since 2009. And we'll talk about how these developments fit with global trends. In this interview, you'll hear from Sophie Collier, Oscar Cetrangolo and David Stewart. Sophie is a research director at the Centre on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University in New York. Oscar is a director at the Faculty of Economics at the University of Buenos Aires. David is Chief of Child Poverty and Social Protection at UNICEF headquarters, also in New York. Sophie, Oscar, David, welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. Great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Sophie, I'll come to you first with a couple of questions about the new child allowance in the US. Can you give us a brief summary of the main features of the new program? So, you know, the United States is a bit of an outlier in the context of child allowances and child poverty. So for many years, we've had one of the highest rates of child poverty across OECD nations. And we've also stood out because we didn't have a child-focused social protection as many other OECD countries have had, like Ireland and Canada and the UK. But in 1997, we established something called the Child Tax Credit, which was significantly expanded under the recent American Rescue Plan. Now, for this year, this credit looks much more like the child allowances that are in place in other countries. But understanding that change kind of requires a little bit of understanding about what what policy was in effect beforehand. So I'll give a quick summary and then a summary of the changes. So before the expansion in the American Rescue Plan, the child tax credit was a credit of $2,000 per child that families could receive at tax time, which is normally the spring in the U.S., but it was not fully refundable. And that means that essentially if your tax liability was less than the full value of the credit, you were not going to receive the full credit and said you'd receive a partial credit or no credit at all. So a family with two children actually needed $36,000 in earnings to qualify for the full credit. And because of this structure, one third of children in the United States were left behind when it came to receiving this full child tax credit. So there were three key changes to the child tax credit in the American Rescue Plan that will be in effect for 2021. The first is that it was made fully refundable. So that third of children who were ineligible previously are now eligible for this credit. The second was that it increased the value from $2,000 per child to $3,000 per child ages six to 17 
and to $3,600 per year uh, for children under age six. And the third is that it stipulated that the credit be delivered monthly to keep up with you know, the day-to-day costs of raising children that don't just come at tax time. So this expansion will benefit nearly 90% of children across the United States. And according to estimates from our center, it's, we've estimated that it'll reduce child poverty in the United States by about 45%. Sophie, the child allowance you've just mentioned was brought in as part of the American Rescue Plan Act. So it's an emergency COVID relief type measure. How much of this is actually about responding to the effects of COVID on household and child poverty and the US? And how much is it about broader poverty trends? Great question. And and the way I see it is that COVID has emphasized the need for a policy that guards against economic instability for children and families. But we know that financial precarity is not limited to times when there's a global pandemic, but you know, was widespread in the time before the pandemic, when about 10 million children in the United States lived in poverty. So while COVID has highlighted the need uh, you know, for this type of measure, the calls for permanency, in my mind, show that many politicians, advocates, community members see this as a necessary policy in the fight against poverty in the United States and child poverty going forward. Oscar, turning to you, Argentina's social protection system reaches most children through a combination of tax-financed and contributory schemes. Can you give us a brief overview of what social protection programs exist for children and what their impact on child poverty have been? Yeah, in Argentina, we have extensive experiences protection for children. We have had the system for children of former workers since the middle 50s. But the problem of, of, of very high informality in the labor market, and it was a bit like the situation in the US, the poorest children were missing out because their family weren't paying tax or insurance. So in 2009, the universal child benefit will be used for families of informal workers that provides around $30 per child each month. The Universal uh, Child Benefit Program now is very extensive. It covers 4 million children in around uh, 2.5 million households. It provides significant income for those households, but there are significant limits. First, there are still close to 1 million children without coverage, most of them because of not having paper documentation, because they live in remote areas, or are undocumented immigrants, or have not registered for other reasons. And uh, the other limit is the value of the transfers, because they are very low. They are only about $30 per month per child, as I said before, and that can be less than a quarter of the basic uh, food basket. So most of these households are still in poverty unless these families are uh, are living very close to the poverty line. That is not enough to move children out of poverty situation. Thank you. David, taking a step back, why do you think a universal or near universal approach is so important when it comes to tackling child poverty? We know so clearly the devastating impacts that child poverty has on kids, on their health, on their education, on their nutrition, um, but also more than that, their their sense of self and aspirations and and what they can contribute. 
And this, of course, has huge long-term impacts on societies addressing child poverty. So the costs of missing kids through these programs is really, really high. And the challenge with targeted or narrowly targeted programs is they do indeed miss a lot of kids. So even if your intention is to reach a broader proportion, what you find when you crunch the numbers is that you have these high rates of exclusion. 50, 60% of kids may be excluded from, from programs. So again, we have this, we have this challenge. Um, and the final challenge is that poverty is not static. So even if you were to somehow get all of this right, there's constant movement uh, of who's moving in and out, which requires constant retargeting which is just not the reality in many places. So one piece which is very important is, is these programs don't stigmatize children and families. They don't single kids out and kids living in poverty live with that enough. And relatedly, universal programs are a commitment to a nation's children, a national commitment to a nation's children. And in being universal in this way, they can help build a sense of social cohesion and connection for supporting children reach their potential. Thanks, David. Sophie, of course, the challenge with these kinds of programs is that they they do cost money. And if they're reaching a a large number of children with adequate amounts, then those costs do add up. I know that your centre has done some analysis on benefits versus costs for ongoing benefits of this kind in the US. Can you talk us through some of those findings? Sure. So, The high rates of child poverty in the United States have been estimated to cost the country about a trillion dollars per year, according to a census report by the National Academy of Sciences. The CTC expansion is estimated to cost between $100 and $150 billion per year. So research from our center answered the question, what's the actual dollar value in terms of the benefits to society that would result from this expansion? And we found that, you know, in terms of improvements to children's health and longevity and earnings and tax payments as an adult and reduced spending and transfers over time, all of these benefits add up to far outweigh the immediate costs of this program. And it actually pays for itself about eight times over. The biggest uh, gains we're seeing that driving from this are in terms of improvements to health and longevity. So children's health is improving as a result of making sure that there's stable income in the home. So we estimate that those increases in children's health actually have a benefit to society of about $600 billion in the long run. So that's huge, right? Um, But then there's also these benefits in terms of earnings deriving from both improvements in educational outcomes and then building upon that in terms of attachment to the labor force going forward. And then the tax payments resulting from those increased earnings as an adult. But also, the U.S. has a a large problem of mass incarceration, and that's in part associated with our high rates of of poverty. And so, you know, if you start to address that underlying cause, you're going to see these reductions in terms of spending on incarceration in the future. Oscar, how do these arguments about cost versus benefits play out in Argentina? Well, any concern about the cost of problems in Argentina would be, I think, unjustified due to the magnitude of poverty. We have more than 60% of, of children living in poor households because prior to the pandemic, the universal child benefit reached only uh, 0.5% of GDP. So there is no way to argue against the fiscal cost of the program. 
If you wanted to leave all houses out of poverty in Argentina, we have calculated with UNICEF that you need to spend 3% of GDP on child allowances. Sophie, the, the politics of this are interesting. There are proponents of an ongoing child benefit of some kind on both the left and the right of US politics. What are some of the arguments that both sides make in support? There is some consensus in between some on the left and the right in terms of this policy, but then there are also, you know, other disagreements. So, you know, one argument is that the high rate of child poverty in the U.S. is just, it's just kind of, it's unacceptable. And the fact that the program through which the federal government was actually spending the most directly on children was just not correct that it left out so many children. On the right, it's a bit more of a mixed bag in terms of what people think the child allowance, how it should be structured. For example, some are motivated very similarly based on what I was just saying and and believe that there shouldn't be things like an earnings requirement or testing in order to be eligible for uh, a child allowance. So that's actually you know the position of Senator Romney who's put forward a different proposal for a child allowance. But there are others that think differently. And there's an argument from some that it's a pro-family policy. Others identified as libertarian think of this as, you know, preferable because it's a cash transfer as opposed to an in-kind transfer, and that allows for more choice. But again, the policy parameters and the consensus around those policy parameters are a little bit less clear on the right. The other thing that you hear on the right is about cutting other social programs to finance this program. So it's a reorientation of spending. And, you know, any sort of proposal where you're cutting large programs also needs to be thought of about the consequence of those cuts. We see many of the arguments against broad-based benefits play out in these debates about child allowances, like whether cash transfers to parents will make them lazy, disinclined to work, whether recipients will spend their money on the right things, whether there should be conditions. David, these are well-studied questions in social protection literature. What does the evidence say on some of these commonly held ideas? Yeah, these are really important questions. Despite there being a lot of evidence out there, they do keep coming up in conversations. So first on how the money is used, the evidence shows time and again that providing parents with resources results in very pro-child spending in the household. Spending typically goes first to food, to education, to healthcare, and then on productive opportunities. And this is seen not only in sort of surveys of spending, but the results of impact evaluations where you see increases in food security, school enrollment, and health access. So, so how the money is used, the evidence comes through very clearly. Similarly, on concerns around dependency, we see here that cash transfers or benefits do increase productive assets in households, including livestock and agricultural inputs. So it, it very much supports the economy and, and for households to increase the, the labor in the household. And finally, on fertility, and this varies a little bit depending on the exact transfer in the context. In lower and middle income countries, there's no evidence of increased fertility. And indeed, there is evidence on women being more empowered and having more control over their sexual and reproductive health and delaying fertility decisions. But that said, in some higher income countries, there are programs which are specifically designed to alleviate the cost of having children, to make it more manageable and more doable so there can be uh, an impact 
there. But it has to be stressed. This has to be in the design. You need large transfer amounts. And it needs to be very, very focused uh, in order for that to happen. So that's more or less the key evidence in these, in these areas. Thank you. Oscar, I'd be really interested to hear from you. What are the controversies or debates about child allowances in Argentina? Uh, the merit of the problem is such that it is mostly accepted. There is some rise to criticism about disincentives to work. But given the, the employment situation in Argentina, this position has very little support. Some have said that it encourages informality, but this is also not justified as the size of the benefit is similar to that provided through the former program. From the left, it's different, of course. One of the things that they reject is the existence of conditionalities related to attendance and health checks. Because if children and families meet the situation, they get an additional 20% of the allowance. Another portion of the, of the left would prefer to see programs that supported employment, of course, instead of this kind of uh, assistance to the children. The other issue, uh, David's point, is about fertility rates. So in Argentina, we have the same, almost the same fertility rates for people on this program compared with what on the program. So there is no basis for this argument as well in Argentina. That's interesting. Sophie, it's really interesting to see such a renewed focus on expanding the safety net in the US because I feel the cultural stereotypes about welfare queens and work avoidance have been so prominent in the past. Is this narrative changing in the US? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think that the pandemic revealed to many what those living paycheck to paycheck in the United States already knew. And was, was that that people have much less control over their economic lives than they're led to believe. And so for a long time, these stereotypes, you know, propagated by those who advocated for a shrinking safety net, led many to believe that struggling to get by was some sort of personal failing and that reaching out for any assistance, you were taking advantage. Um, and it was effective because it, it both stoked racism in the United States, and it has a very American spin to it, this nation where people really pride themselves on this kind of more bootstraps narrative. But after a number of recessions and so much the industrialization, creating havoc on people's lives, and now a pandemic, you know, many people in the U.S. like don't see need as much as a weakness, as much as a consequence of factors far outside their control. So I think that as that idea is becoming more widespread, you're seeing a shift in the change about like what is the role of, of policy and government. But I also think it's important to think about the child allowance and the CTC, not necessarily just a safety net policy. It's a policy that many middle and high income families in the US were already benefiting from. And these reforms, you know, fill the gap so that as a you know, a policy now that lower and middle income, moderate, excuse me, income families can benefit from as well. David, even a temporary child benefit in the US has been big news, let alone whether or not it continues into the future. How does this kind of expansion compare with global trends? Yeah, it's been very big, uh, very big news and exciting news. Um, and in terms of where we are in global trends on, on universal child benefits or large coverage benefits, we're a really interesting possible inflection point that could go in different directions. I mean, on the one hand, we've seen a 
tremendous response to COVID with the recognition of the challenges of child poverty and the potential of social protection and child benefits to make a difference. So over 200 countries scaling up, almost all of them with some form of, of cash transfer, many of them child benefits. And we see in individual countries, positive movements towards universality. So our data shows there are 21 countries, mostly high income, that have a universal child benefit and, and 14 that have what we'd call a quasi universal child benefit, sort of some important elements. Um, and then we see countries moving in really positive directions. The US is a really great example. Italy is planning to have a universal child benefit. Lithuania also plans in Montenegro for a zero to six benefit. Expansion in Thailand, in Africa, we're seeing a pilot in Kenya. We're seeing moves towards grants for zero to fives in Tunisia and Morocco. So there is, it feels like there's a very positive groundswell in a very important direction. But we also have real risks, and it's hard to know how things are going to play out. If we look back at the what happened after the, the financial crisis of 2008, there was this realization. There was also retrenchment and austerity, which reduced programs. And we saw that child benefits, particularly in OECD countries, were really pretty hard hit. Uh, as a result of those programs, of that austerity. So I think we're really at an important moment to, to push this forward. And I think it's really important that we look at this both from the context of the impacts of COVID and the COVID recovery, but also the impacts that we're seeing and are going to be growing from climate. And if we don't prepare ourselves and prepare children to be able to be protected and supported to flourish with these programs, we're going to find ourselves in, in an in a ever more challenging spot. Thanks, David. Oscar, I understand that Argentina's child benefit schemes were amongst some of the programs that were used to support families during the COVID crisis. Do you think there will be changes to the overall system due to the most recent COVID experience? Well, everybody is, is thinking about that, and the answer is it's not so easy. There has been an important expansion of the program. The biggest social protection program implemented in response to the COVID was actually targeted to, to, to at adults to help uh, guarantee a minimum basic income. That was the emergency family income program in Spanish Ingreso Familiar de Emergencia. It was very important but not sufficient to replace incomes and other benefits like child allowances form an important part of the safety net. Uh, a one-off bonus was also paid to families receiving child allowances. And there is a, an, an additional amount of money that you have to, to use to, to buy food, the target alimentar, that also increased the income of the family in, in this situation. The difference in Argentina is that our fiscal situation is very weak. We have an important fiscal deficit prior to the pandemic. This is not a discussion about the willingness of government to increase in the coverage for all children and increase in the magnitude. But the problem is how much we can afford that, and there are a lot of restrictions. This is part of the uncertainty about the future because of the economic crisis, no because of the pandemic, and this is our main discussion today in Argentina. Sophie, what do you think are the prospects for the US child allowance continuing beyond the current emergency timeframe? Yeah, so there's a big push for this. Just two weeks ago, um, the Biden administration released the American Families Plan 
which includes an extension of this child allowance child tax credit through 2025. And then many House Democrats or all of the House Democrats are, you know, pushing for even longer permanency. I think that conversation will continue, particularly through the summer as payments begin to be delivered. And so I do believe that there's going to be a change in, in all of those political calculations once money um, kind of lands in bank accounts across the country. Oscar, when you look at the debates in the U.S., what stands out to you as being interesting? This is the big difference with the United States. And, uh, and uh, talking about this, uh, these problems for children, the main difference is that in, in developed countries, there is, uh, there is no informal sector and there is uh, the coverage for, for workers is full. I mean, the, the, there is unemployment benefit. We have, we have no unemployment benefit because our employed population comes from the informal sector. Then when you are talking about this kind of program for children, you have to, to, to take into account that these incomes are the incomes of the household. It's not just for children. Many, many families uh, have this, uh, this uh, allowances as the only or the unique income. And, and this is uh, the big difference. I mean, you have to take into account. David, what do you think, if anything, the US could learn from the experiences of low and middle income countries when it comes to addressing its own challenges around child poverty? I think one of the things which is so clear is what a global issue child poverty is. Anywhere you look, you will see that children are more likely to live in poverty than adults and the and the impacts on their lives follow similar trajectories. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for mutual learning in this area. I think from the US, what is so clear is for high-income countries, many already have universal child benefits, but there's the potential to turn these benefits on, to flick a switch and move forward. It's well within the means of countries to do that. And I think as Oscar showed us in Argentina, in middle-income countries, these are affordable programs. You know, Oscar was talking about 0.5% of, of GDP. And we did some estimations that for 1% of GDP, middle-income countries could reduce their child poverty rates by 20 percentage points. So huge benefits with achievable costs. For lower-income countries, the challenges are greater because they have larger child populations and smaller budgets. But even there, it's very possible and doable to start a transfer, maybe starting with uh, younger children and moving up through the age ranges over time as they've done in South Africa for something which is fiscally sustainable. So I think it's very important that we keep sight of the affordability of these programs. In terms of looking the other way, what higher income countries maybe can learn from the experiences of lower and middle income countries? I think there are a couple of pieces that, that came through in this conversation. Sophie was talking about guarding against precarity in the program. And I think learning middle-income countries are very well attuned to these challenges and have been working on sort of shock-responsive social protection, social protection systems which are ready to, to deal with, with the crises as they come up. And it really takes a combination of a strong, broad-based program already reaching lots of people and then the mechanics and mechanisms to be able to scale that up when needed. And I think there are some really useful lessons learned there. Uh, and the second is probably around simplicity of processes. And I think a lot of countries have really realized that to reach people, we need to make identification, if indeed there is that, well, there'll always be some form of identification process, simple registration, 
payment mechanisms, grievance mechanisms. These are things which have really been refined in a way that those who should be receiving the benefit are able to and are able to engage with the system in, in an effective way. And, and I think a number of the pieces that Sophie was talking about, really, really, you really get the sense of the US moving strongly in that direction. Building on what David said, and a huge conversation taking place in the United States now is how do we get this done, right? You know, how do we make sure that this money is reaching families? How does the IRS, which is Internal Revenue Service, which is our tax agency, gear up to administer these monthly? And and how do we reach people who are outside the tax system? And those are all questions that David just mentioned, you know, lower middle income countries have addressed and have thought through, as well as thinking about communities that that maybe have less trust in the government or are less attached to the government. And how do you reach out to, to communities to ensure that they are accessing this if they choose to? And that's, I think, another thing that exists, you know, across nations and, and their strategies um, to bring folks in um, that have been developed across the world. Oscar, David, Sophie, Thank you so much for making the time to join me today. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Before we go, we'll end with our quick wins segment. Each month, we'll ask a guest to give a quick roundup of news, achievements, research or knowledge that has sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Joining me today is Dr. Katie Rowland. Katie is a research fellow and co-director of the Centre for Social Protection at the Institute of Development Studies. She's also the host of Poverty Unpacked, another great podcast. Welcome, Katie. Thanks, Joe. Great to be with you. So let's get started. What's your first pick for today? So my first pick for today is actually related to the topic of this uh, episode of the podcast, and that refers to the resources of the Global Coalition to End Child Poverty, and especially their brief on child-sensitive social protection. The Global Coalition to End Child Poverty is a global initiative, and we work with international organizations, civil society, and campaigners to raise awareness about children living in poverty around the world. And currently it's chaired by UNICEF and Save the Children. Now their website includes many resources on child poverty and how to tackle it, including social protection. And their briefing paper on child sensitive social protection, I find a really good resource when it comes to providing an overview of what child sensitive social protection is and also how it can be achieved. Thanks, Katie. And I can recommend your own recent episode of Poverty Unpacked, where you spoke with the members of the coalition about this topic. Um, that episode also features David Stewart from UNICEF, who, of course, joined our discussion in the segment that the listeners have just heard. What's next? My next pick is a recent overview of resources on social protection and COVID-19 uh, that was published by SPACE. Now, SPACE is a sort of help desk that generates a wealth of information on social protection and particularly the social protection response to the pandemic. In the past year, they've published such an impressive number of briefs and papers, all very helpful. And most recently, they updated their overview of materials, which is a living document and attracts relevant uh, papers on COVID-19 and social protection. And this includes their own work as well as work by others, a really rich resource that I can recommend to everyone. Yes, this really is quite an incredible public good. 
And I found fascinating just as an indication of how much knowledge and practice has been created really just in the last year. And that gives me an opportunity to shout out a new COVID-19 page on socialprotection.org, which brings together all sorts of content, including dashboards, databases from different organisations and agencies, uh, and links to some key readings which were curated by Space. And what's your last recommendation, Katie? Well, my last recommendation is research by Marion Uma on the politics of social protection. Marion is a political scientist from Kenya, and she's written a lot about how social protection took shape in Kenya. And she published her work in various academic articles and journals, most of which are behind paywalls, but her full thesis is accessible online and free of charge. And Marion researched the role of international and national stakeholders in shaping social protection in Kenya, and especially the CTOVC program and the Hunger Safety Net program. And with lots of discussion around the politics of social protection among all of us working in the area, I think her work provides a really rich insight into how transnational actors interact with governments to push social protection in a certain direction. Thanks so much for sharing this one, Katie. I thought the author's almost forensic account of who had influence at which moments in time, what they were competing to achieve, what tools and resources they were bringing to shape the policy process. It was, it was just incredible. Um, and although these case studies are from Kenya, people working in other countries will find resonance, I think, with the discussions about inter-ministerial competition, donor politics and rivalry and much more as well. As always, we'll put links to all of these resources in our show notes. And I've got something as well to share today. In June and July, we'll be hosting a special six-part series brought to you by ODI and GIZ. It will ask the question, is COVID-19 a turning point for social protection, which I think is a key question that we're all looking at right now. The six episodes will look at how the response worked for women, informal workers, refugees and people in urban contexts, and more broadly at social protection operations and financing through the pandemic. Francesca Bastagli from ODI will host this series, and Katie, I think you'll be speaking on the paper about COVID responses in urban areas, is that right? Yes, indeed. And it's been a really interesting project to be part of. There's so much that's happened last year and so much to be learned from. And one of the things that's really stood out for me in the work on um, the social protection response in urban context is how much has shifted. I think the needle has really moved, particularly when it comes to more coverage in urban areas and also including informal workers in social protection responses. So something to look forward to in terms of new learning, and it should be an exciting podcast series. I think it will be fantastic. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, Joe. Great to be with you. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org, which is the place to go online for free information, research and community on all things social protection. You can follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Send us a message. Tell us about your quick wins this month. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and think about leaving a review. Nothing is more exciting than a review to a podcaster. Back next month. See you then. Listener.